Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. All we've got are are pieces. We can't seem to figure out what the puzzle is supposed to look like. John Mitchell resigns as the head of Creep. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. Hunt's come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. Follow the money. The glory days of journalism, when the heroes of movies, like all the president's men, were dogged reporters, holding the powerful to account and upholding the principles of democracy and devotion to the truth. I just want to cover the truth of it. Mm -hmm. And the truth is muddy. Democracy is muddy. And it's bloody. But these are perilous times for both democracy and journalism. There is a relationship between democracy and journalism that I don't think we are connecting the dots enough to really say, this is happening on our watch. We're letting it slide. Both are under siege from interconnected forces, a general distrust of established institutions, the dominance of social media and tech giants, a toxic mix of polarization, misinformation, and conspiracy mongering, and the rise of populist authoritarianism. In her 35-year career, Lisa Laflamme has seen democracy at its most resilient and at its most vulnerable. She spent almost 12 years as the chief anchor and senior editor of CTV National News beginning in 2011, and she's won 13 Canadian Screen Awards. I interviewed her at an event called In Defense of Democracy, presented by the Samara Centre for Democracy in Toronto in November 2023. Thank you all for being here tonight. I wanted to uh, begin by acknowledging the difficult context in which we're meeting tonight, Mm. all of us. Um, It's an inflection point in history, I think is an understatement, but obviously for all those who are caught up in the moment uh, abroad, but also here in Canada, of course, uh, and also around the world. So Lisa, in times like these, normally, you would be getting on a plane and, Mm. and going somewhere. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are as you watch this time from afar. Well, you're absolutely right, Nal. I mean, I think this is the first conflict I haven't covered in over 22 years. And uh, it is very different to be watching it than to be watching your back on the ground, wherever that conflict is. Big news abroad, though, and we are just seeing the direct impact on neighborhoods and communities here in Canada. And uh, I have to say the Islamophobia, the anti-Semitism that is unfolding in this country right now is so painful to see and is so wrong. 
I feel like we have to say out loud again and again, there is such a difference between free speech and hate speech, and it's important to know that. But in the context of journalism, it's more than ever the reason why experience and context and history is so critically important whenever anything like this happens. It does feel like we're a bit of a turning point. But I heard an expression the other day, you know, that... um, Democracy is such a cliffhanger right now that even Gen Z is paying attention. So to all the Gen Zs out there, thanks for coming. And the boomers, you know who you are. As long as we don't become doomers, we're okay. Speaking of history, it's often when you and I cross paths is when we were covering, you know, the first draft of history. And and, and I think that I last saw you in person was in Egypt wow. in 2011, which was a a very big moment again in the history of that region and the rest of the world. So much has changed in our business since then. Wow, it's so true. I remember that so vividly. Arab Spring, of course, started in Tunisia, where I just was not that long ago. But that experience in Egypt for me in Cairo, first of all, was terrifying, if you remember. Oh, yeah. I could not go out with my camera person with his big camera, it was too dangerous because the mob was turning on the media. And I mean, we have subsequently seen that in so many places and so many different times. So I literally, and so many others, were out shooting on our iPhone and using that Mm -hmm. phone footage for broadcast purposes. But what I really remember, as far as, boy, have times changed, or that was the turning point then, is Twitter was just becoming a thing, really. So I was like, okay, I'm going to embrace this. Why the hell not? Let's Mm -hmm. embrace the new technology, the new social media platform. And I was interviewing all of these incredible women and, and men in the moment, and recording them, sending them, writing a text to go with it. And then by the time, because of course the time zone, by the time it came to write my national news script, it felt like I was writing news that had happened yesterday. Because that's the nature of the beast. Then I learned it there. And now, of course, it's just writ large, that reality. It is. And so if we fast forward from that time, 2011, what is the math? I guess 12 years later, We as journalists are really fond of saying that journalism is integral to democracy. But I wonder when I look around, and I often ask this question, in the face of so much evidence that trust is waning in traditional media, is it still true in your estimate that journalism is foundational to protecting democracy? More than ever. Honestly, more than ever. I think the two go hand in glove. It is the public's right to have accurate, fair, unbiased information. It is their right to have that in a democracy. More than ever, though, because of the misinformation and disinformation that is just so rampant. And honestly, if people don't realize, and, and, and a lot is you know, on the shoulders of the consumer here, the difference between journalism and noise, news and noise, it's pastime to focus down on that. But I would say in, in, in so many countries I've been throughout the world where people and journalists would really risk their entire lives for something we totally take for granted in this country, and that is a democracy. And believe me, when you are in a country where there is no free press 
that is when you realize that the two are completely linked. If you let journalism die, you are irreparably damaging your democracy, is my view. Yeah. At the same time, though, there are countries, and I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, where journalism is really strong, but the democratic backsliding is worse. How do you square those things? How is it possible for those two things to coexist? Um, well, uh, that's a great point. And I'm going to mention Tunisia here, mm -hmm. because after the Arab Spring, there was this amazing feeling of freedom. The journalists that are friends of mine to this day felt it. They could say what they want. A president was brought in. They thought, this guy is, is a Democrat. This is a new world. Well, guess what's happened in these 12 years? He is now more of an autocrat. There are reporters, once again, being imprisoned, intimidated, harassed, uh, but you might be referring to closer to home. I'm talking to somewhere closer to home. I am. <laughs> she, see, she didn't want to say it. I'm going to make you say it, sister. <laughs> there are some incredibly strong journalists in the U.S. and people who do wonderful investigative reporting and excellent political reporting. And yet, sometimes they're preaching to the choir. There isn't the reach that one would hope for these traditional media, like, mm -hmm. let's name them, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, other organizations. Mm -hmm. What's your sense? I mean, could that tide reverse? Well, I believe it, it could reverse, mm -hmm. but things need to happen now. Why? Because um, the same rules that allow Breitbart to exist, for example, are the same rules that allow, um, you know, here in this country, the hive, the nor narwhal to exist. I mean, it is the loudest uh, bullhorn, if you will. And, I, and it, it has to also come back to society. People are so disenfranchised, they're depressed, they're deflated for an, any number of reasons that they're going to look to something that speaks to them. Mm. And I'm not going to say, although I'm about to say, this conversation could be divided between before Trump and after Trump. I, I'm not saying he created the polarization, but he 100% gave it oxygen enough to overload the system with lies and basically short-circuit the system. And that is where we still are. I mean, to refer to journalists as the enemy of the people, people were listening. In, in terms of specifically the media, and it gives me no joy to say this, the level of trust in tradition, traditional media is as low mm. as it's ever been. Where do you see the most evidence of that in the circles that you move in? Well, I mean, you can see it in the numbers. You can see it in newspapers yeah. that are dying. You can see it in television broadcasts that are dying. Certainly, social media had a role in it. There's no doubt about it. Misinformation had a role in it. Media literacy, or lack thereof, had a role in it. Uh, it is a bit of a, a mess when you look at for me, local news. That is where this all has The erosion to, of local news. The erosion of yeah. local news. Yeah. It's the most basic thing. Every single one of us, no matter what community you grew up in, and depending on your age, you would have known the whole, you know, action team. <laughs> the Ron Burgundy action news team. Right. <laughs> Let's face it. And um, that's gone. And the centralization of news is really impacting what, to me, was essentially 
relationship building. I mean, when I was a local reporter, I'm sure it was the same for you. Maybe you think the every Wednesday night council meeting was boring or the school trustees meeting boring, but actually that's where the stories emerged from. Those were where we built those relationships. The community trusted us as the reporters covering that city, town, whatever it was, in whatever platform, and and that's gone. Yeah. It's such a great point because that is where relationships are formed. Mm-hmm. I remember covering the Nepean City Council in Ottawa and it was it was where you meet people and make connections and also mm-hmm. show them what you do. I want to talk briefly about whether there's any culpability with the traditional media itself. Mm-hmm. How much of the blame could be actually put on the media itself? Because there are a lot of people out there who say, well, you did this. Mm-hmm. Not you, but uh, the, yeah, the traditional well, media. Yeah. I was in it for 35 years. So, <laughs> well, all of us. You know, yeah. all of us. Yeah. But the foundation is local. So let's... I, I need to just further explain why I see that sure. relationship as so critically important. Yeah. I'm going to go right back to when I was 23, 24 years old. I had just graduated. I had my degree. I thought, I've got the world by the, you know... Can I swear on radio? I don't think so. Um, Sometimes. Anyway, you know what I mean. Um, and I, the assignment editor sends me to a neighborhood where I'm not, not a word of a lie. There is a three-legged cat up a tree. Cat's name is Tripod. And I'm thinking, I am watching the Pulitzer just That's a great slide story. from my hand. That's a front pager. But it was a front pager in K-Dubs, where I'm from. But So anyway, I get there. The whole neighborhood is out by this tree watching Tripod, who, by the way, is not budging. The firefighter shows up, hoists the ladder, the whole nine yards. But while everybody's watching, we're chatting. And it's the old wink, wink, nudge, nudge. If you really want a story, there is, mm. there's been like nine children in the last year who've been wow. um, injured by cars trying to cross this street because the school was right across that street. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So we, CKCO is where I worked then. We set up a secret camera. You know, it was the 80s. We could do anything. (laughs) (laughs) We, We did a series of stories, and I will say that the city didn't just put in a crosswalk. They put in a a stoplight. And that was the relationship building I'm talking about, which takes you from there to a provincial level. I mean, Mm -hmm. right where we are. It was Emma McIntosh, I think, of Narwhal, who cracked the Greenbelt scandal here. I could give you an hour and a half of Bob Fife stories and what he cracked. You know, there's a reason they call him Fife the Knife. (laughs) But it's, it's about what the public wouldn't know without conventional journalism. So are we culpable in the demise? Sure, we probably didn't take social media seriously enough. If it started with Craigslist and and that knocked out the classifieds Mm. in a newspaper and then Facebook and then video on Facebook and it's possible we didn't take it seriously enough then but we are facing the reality now. So what is the reality now where television news is concerned? It used to be, as you say, mm-hmm. kind of king, and then cable you know, networks came along, and then social media and all of that. Where does it stand now in your estimate? 
Um, it's, it's a crisis time, I would say. I'm not using that word lightly, and especially given, you know, keep it in context. We're talking about journalism yeah, and mass layoffs. There are ramifications to all of this, to gutting newsrooms. There's ramifications for the conflict we're seeing right now, actually. Canadian news outlets didn't have any bureaus in the Middle East. Almost, I don't think any did, correct? I will be corrected, I'm sure, if I missed as one. Far as, he, as far as, as I know. As far as correct. I know. Yeah. And, and that means everyone parachutes in. That means you learn on the plane, basically. And you and I have both had to do this. But there's no institutional knowledge anymore. There are not as many veterans. I think I became a better journalist because I was eavesdropping on the veteran beside me and, and learning how to push that source, how to build that Rolodex. It made me better. It made me who I am, really. And I feel bad in these shrunken newsrooms where there aren't as many veterans anymore that some of those skills that we learned, yes. they're disappearing. Mm -hmm. Double sourcing, all of these things. I, again, I am a bit of a broken record on this one, but it is, it's danger zone time for democracy because this is what we're looking at. I mean, I think about these family-owned newspapers, family-owned mm. TV station, which right. is the first one I worked at. And those families, the stewardship was a responsibility. It was a source of pride, and it was personal. Corporations don't have that sense of stewardship. Their responsibility is not to democracy, it's to the shareholder. And who pays? Canadians pay. Canadian democracy pays. I, I truly feel that way. I look at television, because I used to work in television too, I don't any, anymore, um, and the heart of television was, and it still is in some ways, but it was really the anchor. It's a, it's a role that you were in for many, many years. That has really substantially changed too. Do you think there's still a role for that voice, you know, the voice from God kind of sitting at that desk? Uh, wow. and no, that was Lloyd being, Robertson. No, he <laughs> was the voice from God. <laughs> but is that, I mean, where does that sit at the moment? Again, when we're thinking about where journalism fits in democracy and where trust is. Well, trust is earned 100%. I will say for me, the role of anchor was never about the prestige of it. It was about the responsibility of it. And I am a news consumer as well as a journalist, so I'm watching everything, and I am deciding, actually, who do I trust? Who do I trust? Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's the people who've spent years and years in the field and know what they're talking about, can bring context to the job. Yeah. So that may be changing. But, you know... Viewers got to know me uh, from years of covering war, Iraq, Afghanistan, name the conflict or calamities, disasters, federal elections. Wait, <laughs> those could have been <laughs> one and the same. 
I did not mean that <clears throat> the way it came out. But, but the point is, they know you. Yeah. They know you. Yeah. So I don't know how it's evolved or changed, but I know who I trust, who I watch, and who I respect to tell me the unvarnished truth and um, the fair, unbiased truth. And yeah. trust is something you earn. It is not handed to you because of a job title. Yeah. I'm curious if you ever watch some of this phenomenon of opinion-based anchors who Mm. have tons of followers, huge Mm. loyal audiences. And I know this is a risky question, but is there anything in what they're doing, you think, that maybe the rest of us can learn? And obviously not talking about the dog whistle type of, Mm -hmm. of communication, but is... What is it that they're doing that we're not, traditional media? Well, we're not because we're fact-based journalists. Sure. I mean, I was not trained. Yeah, that should be applaud because, <laughs> applauded because it, it, there's a difference. And I love to listen to really intelligent people giving me their opinion on politics of the day or global conflict or anything and put it in perspective. But that's not our job as as journalists. We are trained to go out fact-finding. I mean, journalists are the practitioners. We are like the grease in democracy. We go out, we fact-find, we know who to ask, we get both sides of a story. So what they're doing... um, I mean, are you talking about Fox? I, <laughs> sure, that could be an example. But I, I mean, yeah. you yeah. know, I don't want to be told by any boss how I'm supposed to cover sure. something. Yeah. As a journalist, I just want to cover the truth of it. Mm-hmm. And the truth is muddy. Democracy is muddy and it's bloody. But you can be there to show both sides of a story. Sometimes there are not both sides. I 100% understand yeah. that. But I have wondered, it, what have we done? What did we do? I've looked at, maybe it's the framework of mm-hmm. the stories we cover. I mean, we cover, we cover the bad cop, the mm-hmm. bad priest, the yeah. bad MP. What are we not doing? Mm-hmm. We are not giving our opinion. Maybe people want to be led mm-hmm. by the nose right now because if they hear someone say something that speaks to them and... You know, sadly, it is just not at all the values we as Canadians want to share or say out loud or say on network television. It's dangerous. I feel that it's dangerous. And I want to, I always try to stick on the side of facts, um, which can also be dangerous because part of the reality of today is people don't necessarily uh, agree on what the truth is Who's anymore. Facts? Who's Whose reality? facts are you going to believe? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So um, I don't know, but I will say that I spent a long time starting every newscast saying good evening and then spending the next 30 minutes telling people why it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so should we be covering better news? I don't know. Would yeah. people tune in? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a reason for the yeah. rise in true crime, I think. Sure. Watching true crime. People yeah. obviously are drawn to that. Yeah. So when we're talking about trust, I mean, none of this, of course, is happening in a vacuum. There is declining trust in everything, mm. in p- politics, in experts, in scientists, in medicine. You've lived it. We've all lived it. I wonder what about that bigger picture worries you the most? 
Wow, so much worries me about it because we see it. I mean, there is a fight going on globally right now between autocracy and democracy. And most of the time, sadly, right now, I see the dictators winning and growing. And it's very worrisome because it will be the most vulnerable who are left out in the cold here or on a curb. I worry about that a great deal. The question is, what do we do with this? Mm -hmm. How do we bring it back? And that is a real challenge. And I I, I don't, if I had the answers, (laughs) I would literally be in a hammock in Tahiti right now with (laughs) an umbrella drink because I'd have made a million, millions of dollars trying to figure this one out. You're listening to my conversation with former CTV national news anchor Lisa Laflamme at an event called In Defense of Democracy, staged in November 2023 by the Samara Centre for Democracy in Toronto. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. The mission of the Samara Center for Democracy is to improve the quality of democratic engagement. And they've uncovered some disturbing trends in our political discourse, particularly on social media. Their research found almost 500,000 abusive tweets sent to candidates in the 2021 Canadian federal election alone, many of them using profane or threatening language. Racialized candidates were more likely to be targets of online abuse, and women received five times as much online abuse as men. I asked Lisa Laflamme about the impact of this online toxicity on our political culture and journalism. This is the absolute crux of all of this. What have we allowed, as a society, social media to do to our democracy? Because now we're talking about certainly so many women politicians and journalists. That's the one thing maybe we all have in common as women is that we are the pincushion for social media. I, I always used to say, you know, I weigh five pounds and the rest of me is thick skin because you need it with what is coming at women largely and racialized women even more so as you've just pointed out. The fear here is that we won't be attracting strong confident, intelligent people to politics or, or journalism. Yeah. It's an easy reason to turn away because it's hard and it's painful. I'm really curious what you say to young journalists or young people who want to be journalists. I get this question all the time. Yeah. Should I? Is this the right business for me? What do you say wow. to, to young people who are interested in doing what we do? I say if you're asking me 
then you don't know because mm. I'm sure it was the same for you. You just know it. It's in your blood. You're driven to it. I can't explain why, but journalism is a passion. If you need to do it because it makes you who you are, you will keep doing it. But I totally understand why people throw their hands in the air and say, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. Not None of us. We certainly didn't. I mean, some of the stuff, I just can't even believe and I've gone through this war in my head for years whether I should call them out this is disgusting what's what the, you are saying what's an example like a, oh, a I kind of abuse say it no, I mean you, is it abuse online is that what, uh, yeah. social media okay. I used to say thank god my mother is not on twitter <laughs> yeah. like, they're saying this about you yeah. know her daughter that would not go over well but it's so ugly so ugly. I'm, I'm sure you could tell me the same thing. I mean, let's face it. This is the reality. Yeah. I didn't often call it out. Yeah. And I have questioned that. Still today, I question it. Yeah. Am I giving them more oxygen? Or if we collectively call it out, will it shut it down? But I mean, we all know it's like whack-a-mole. And with AI coming along? It's going to be worse. Yeah. So, I mean, I sound this, I'm the doomer. Man, but back to the the bigger frame here with with younger people. I mean, some even who are politically engaged are still not the ones who would tend to go to the ballot box and actually vote. The numbers show that that's those two things are not necessarily correlating anymore. Do you have any idea what might account for that? What, why is it that young people mm. we can't get young people to get younger people, not everyone, but to be interested in politics and to actually translate that into vote? Mm. The apathy yeah. is is so dangerous, mm-hmm. and you look at the voter turnout, and it is truly shocking. Um, it's hard for me to know why this is, but I am going to go back to a feeling of disconnection with the actual community, actual people. You know, so many kids have never lived a moment of their lives without a cell phone. And it's really easy to be so focused on something, um, not to realize that you're actually in in this world. We're, We're living this. And you are giving up a right. They might not even realize it's their right. Again, it comes back to media literacy. You look at countries like Finland, Latvia, Estonia, they teach media literacy in kindergarten. Why? Because they border Russia, the absolute master of misinformation and disinformation. Mm -hmm. We have not championed this enough. And and I actually have to say, you know, the education system also has to recognize the responsibility in civics. Mm -hmm. I was talking about two months ago to a high school teacher who told me they don't teach civics anymore. And and I I can't even actually believe that. Mm -hmm. But at that school, that is a fact. So, you know, where is it? It's, It's the whole community that has to just wrap their arms around this situation we're in and try to come up with solutions. Mm-hmm. And that includes everyone here. I mean, if you want good journalism, you have to support good journalism. And these days, that could look like a subscription. There's so much incredible investigative work mm-hmm. out there. And it costs money. You yeah. have to pay for it. And yeah. we have not prioritized it. Yeah. And the trickle-down is kids not knowing or caring to vote. 
So on the media literacy front, and, and the whole picture, as I say, how, how should journalists respond mm. to this moment in a way that would serve the public interest? Keep at it. Stick mm. at it. Double down on it. Because there's fewer, so that's a challenge. But Fewer we, journalists. Fewer journalists, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and as I said, fewer veteran journalists, which is challenging. But the, the values don't change. So I would say we have to, journalists have to stick with it. News bosses have to keep fighting the good fight, not to allow the erosion to continue. And I know before anybody jumps down my throat, I know it's, it's not that simple to say, um, because these are supposedly revenue-generating, sadly. Um, but, you know, fixing erosion is not simple, and it is incumbent on all of us. And again, I need to put a little bit of pressure on the public. Not a little bit, a lot of pressure on the public. This didn't happen in a bubble. If people stop watching, stop reading, stop paying a subscription for newspaper, whatever, this is the world you're getting. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the local, and I'd like to talk a bit more about the international. Mm. And the challenge, of course, with all of this is the cost, as you say, and there's almost nothing mm -hmm. in our world that costs more than covering the international scene and stories like what's ensuing right now. How important do you think it is still to have Canadian eyes mm. bearing witness on any of the things that are happening in Ukraine, Middle East, other places? Mm. I don't think anything has changed on the importance and relevancy of that. It's where news divisions build their reputations on federal elections and conflict. Mm -hmm. It's where we show what we're made of. And going to a hot zone and bringing Canadian eyes, Canadian values, I should say, are critically important, especially in this country, because every country is in our country. So when we go and cover a conflict, no matter where it, where it is, we are actually speaking to that community back home. They want to know, and we need to know in this world what is, through Canadian eyes, is important because it allows you Again, it comes back to trust. Mm -hmm. If I know these reporters are on the ground covering a conflict, I believe they're telling me the truth. That's why I feel it's important. I mean, you and I both had to... You can't be everywhere. So melting a story is something every journalist has to do. For me, I was based in Toronto. For you, in London, mm -hmm. many different places. But Melting meaning... Me oh, melting yeah. means you can't get there fast enough. So the footage comes in. You don't know who shot it. Somebody, an agency that your network pays for, that agency to use that footage, you don't know who did the interviews, so it's their values. Yeah. Whoever did the interview, right. it's their values, and you're going to shoehorn them into Canadian values to tell a Canadian story. And I get it, it's really expensive, but it's money well spent because it matters that we have the truth and what we, and, you know, talking about democracy, through the framework of our democracy. Why is it, it's, it's funny you mentioned the melting, because to me, I've said this a few times publicly, is it's, it's actually when I first started to notice that there is a trust issue with what we do, is people would write me and say, you're in London, why are you doing a story about XYZ, you know, using 
uh, Reuters mm. footage or AP footage. And that was kind of my first experience. You got of- the nice ones. <laughs> I got notes that would say, you know, as an anchor, I was in Erbil, a mile from ISIS right. uh, in Mosul. And they'd be saying, why are you there? Why, why are you there? Mm. Like they wanted to mock the fact that an anchor is traveling. And I've seen this so much. It's like it shows they don't understand what the role should be, which is you are a senior journalist. So when we saw Adrian Hmm. in the Middle East, it's because you know you're getting the truth from that. But melting is something that is... um, (laughs) It's really demoralizing as it well. Yeah. <laughs> For, if you're sitting there watching some incredible story somewhere uh, or, or something you just, you're drawn to and you are writing to someone else's pictures. But I get it. It's, it's got to be a reality from time to time. Could you speak to a bit more, you, you kind of hinted at this, of the importance of doing the international, not just so we know what's happening in the world, but because it also informs how we act as citizens in this country. I mean, it really should. In fact, if anything, it should make us all just feel so grateful, grateful and lucky for the country that we live in, that we live in relative peace. Not relative peace, we live in peace. And um, sometimes I think we can lose sight of that. I don't know how to put this, but it's a, it's a dangerous thing for people not to realize what we have to sort of take for granted the democracy and the peace that we live in in Canadian cities, Canadian neighborhoods. I mean, you've seen people vote for the very first time in their lives. I have. Yeah. Oh, I'll never forget it. In Baghdad, I'll never forget it. The first time, you know, under Saddam Hussein, of course, it was he used to win by 99%. I mean, it's incredible. And then he's gone, and it was the first time with the blue ink and uh, same in Afghanistan, yeah. women voting. Mm. It's critically important for Canadians to see how far we are when we look at this was a new thing for women. And, of course, we could get into what's happening right now in Afghanistan and, mm-hmm. and see the backslide. You still travel the world doing media training. Well, is that, what, is that the right word for um, it? I volunteer for Journalists for Human Rights. I do some media training. I always feel weird saying that because you end up learning far more from these reporters. Like if I had the guts to be a reporter in the Congo or in Mexico or Haiti or so many countries in the world where you literally are taking your life in your hands. I I worked with uh, female reporters in Goma, the war zone in northeastern Congo, and these women had to sleep in their newsrooms because it was too, too dangerous for them to go home. And And one woman in particular, she made a lot of enemies because... She was covering, reporting on this sort of open river bed that was costing people hours to go daily back and forth to get their water. And one simple bridge would have solved it mm-hmm. and you've made a 15 minutes to get your water. And, of course, she follows the money because the money, international aid organizations had given the money, but it was never built. She follows the money obviously makes a lot of enemies doing that. And um, she had just had a baby, and she couldn't even go home and breastfeed her baby. It was too dangerous for her to leave that 
newsroom and the crack of dawn, she'd go home, feed her baby. But these are the things they're willing to do. And I've seen this so many times in so many countries. Um, most recently, Tunisia, as I mentioned, Kenya. There, there's really no end. Afghanistan, these women who could report with a they used to put a graphic in front of their face mm-hmm. of a rose. Then they weren't allowed to report at all. Now they can't even go to a park or go to school. And this is something happening that we are not even talking about anymore. Yeah. And that is the cycle of news. Yeah. We forget so fast. It's so true. I wonder if that contributes sometimes to the trust issues that are out there, is that we do have such a fleeting look at, at things sometimes. It's partly, of course, dictated by the pace of news, which I don't know about you, but it feels like it's going a thousand miles an hour all the time. Yeah, it really yeah. does. Yeah. And that could be. I mean, there's a lot of reasons we, this trust erosion, again, I, I can't identify a moment yeah. where it started, except we should have caught on sooner yeah. and we didn't. So back to that. If you were in charge of a big newsroom like CTV well. or CBC, but, but what would be, where would you begin? Where would you begin a reinvention? Uh, because I, my sense is that that's what's required, is a reinvention. Well, I don't know about reinventing journalism because the values yes. are the same. They should never change. Agreed. I would say that for news owners, um, whatever strategy they come up with or platform or model, I would say they have to maintain or enhance the ethics, the news ethics that go into it. I mean, people throw the word scoop around, Mm -hmm. and every time you hear that word, that is a professional journalist who has a source gave him information, or her followed it up, double sourced, triple sourced. Um, this is not like a rumor on Twitter. <laughs> you know, it is, it is verifiable, this information. And that takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of money to give a reporter time to investigate. And I understand that is a challenge. But I would say if I could, I would try to rebuild rebuild, not reinvent, rebuild in local, especially rebuild those relationships that are disappearing and in some cases have completely disappeared by centralizing systems. You lose those relationships. And I think you can possibly over time, you could restore that if there was a commitment to it. And it it has to be a collective commitment of the public as well. As I say, Mm -hmm. you want good journalism, you have to support it. In the absence of that, the the trajectory that we're on, what's your prognosis? Mm -hmm. What do you see down the road for traditional media, for media in general? Like, what are you seeing? Are you worried? Uh, Sure, I'm worried, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm willing to pivot to wherever. Like, I know... As a journalist, I know who I, whose material I trust and love to read, whether it's any newspaper or anywhere in the world, any newscast anywhere in the world. One of the beautiful things is I can watch nine broadcasts from nine different countries every single day. I can read from all around the world. So that's a plus. The challenge is that 
these platforms, they have to pay their reporters more than a living wage. And if you're giving someone uh, not enough to put a roof or feed their children, that is another reason why they're going to switch industries. And that is a heartbreak to me, especially for those who are passionate about it, but are, I mean, I know reporters, you probably do too, who are working at a bar just to, and that's because they're, you know, they're working as VJs. And, And whenever I'm asked for advice, I feel so, I mean, the the challenges young reporters face right now, I didn't have 30 years ago. They have to shoot, write, edit, and those are all those three And worry about your security. And worry about your security, 100%. But those are all skills alone. Writing is a skill. Shooting, camera work is a skill. Editing is a skill. And not anymore. You've got to be good at all of it. Or guess what? There's people in line waiting for your job, and that's wrong. It should not continue. And again, it's about questions on why is this have to be revenue generating? Mm -hmm. And I know, I know, I know people are maybe rolling their eyes at that, but there is a relationship between democracy and journalism that I don't think we are connecting the dots enough to really say... This is happening on our watch. We're letting it slide. I just have one last question before we go to our audience questions, which I have with me uh, that many of you have submitted before we even began. Um, Our CBC Massey lecture this year, uh, Astra Taylor, said something that's really relevant to this conversation that we've been having, a kind of challenge to all of us. She said, who would I be to talk about democracy if I wasn't trying to democratize our society? So I wanted to put that to you, I guess, beyond us talking about this. What is it that you think that you and I and everybody here should be doing now to protect our democracy for tomorrow? Well, first of all, to everybody here, you obviously believe, as we believe, democracy is important enough to have. And the Samara Center talks about this all the time, the importance of these conversations to engage people, um, to bring young people into the conversation. There's a lot more we could do. And uh, it, sometimes I think people don't, they say, oh, nobody, nobody will want to hear what I have to say or... No, you're, you're part of it. Whatever you're doing in your community makes you a reason we want to hear from you, I always think. Or I don't and, know anything about politics. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yet you're doing something really cool for your community, and that alone makes you uh, someone the rest of us aspire to be, more of a player and less of an observer. And I guess that's the bottom line on that, is what could we do? And it, it's, it's things great and small. It, it's not complicated. We, maybe we overthink things as a society, and um, it really can be done in small doses and together. Even if it's just your neighborhood, you see a difference. Um, now we'll let, we'll let the audience um, uh, give their questions to you. Uh, so it starts here, uh, and some of these are really big questions. Um, and what? yours weren't? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Solve democracy. Yeah, exactly. Well, some of this is the oh, same. Oh, no. <laughs> what, in your opinion, should a 21st century reset for democracy look like? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. Wow. No, not too challenging there. 
Well, uh, again, I'm going to sort of say a similar thing. The responsibility on the consumer is even greater now to separate the news from the noise. And if you don't do your own homework on that, you're going to pay the price. I mean, we are paying the price already. So to reinvent... No, it wasn't reinvent. What was it? Reset. Reset. Oh, my goodness. Buy one of those things on Amazon. It's called a reset button, and you just slap it, and (laughs) you're good to go. There's no easy answer to that question, Uh, but it is the collective that has to do it. And it's not okay for people to just sit in the background and complain and observe oh, the media does this, the media does that, or my politicians do this, or my politicians do that, or whomever. It's about getting involved, taking some ownership of our own world and our own country. Yeah. Uh, This question addresses um, the number of journalists who've been killed in this conflict, in Gaza in particular. Um, and many others and others. What is the responsibility of the journalistic community in Canada towards the global peers? I'll stop there. There's a few parts to this question. Oh, well, I think it's enormous. I mean, up to 40 in, in the Middle East in the last month. I think we're at 17 in Ukraine. Um, I think I looked at, in 2022, 180 journalists killed. Um, it is absolutely terrifying for us to see this unfold. And I would say for Journalists for Human Rights, where we, we go to these conflict zones and try to, I don't know, this isn't even the right word, but validate almost and show they are not alone. Mm-hmm. We're, we're backing them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're backing them if we're safe somewhere. I would like to be right beside them right now is the actual truth of this mm-hmm. because I feel like it's our in our instinct to do that but it's not always possible so I think it really is you know supporting whoever they're working for a lot of these by the way are um, working for very small online operations right. yeah. not networks yeah. and people need to realize that if you want to read an online publication again I go back to sure you could google it and find it but or you could pay for the subscription right. to Give that camera person or that reporter some, some support when they need it yeah. so that they have a proper flak jacket, a proper helmet, because there are renegades out there who want to do this, want to cover this, and don't have the support system around them or the insurance if they die for their families. So it is, it is painful. And we all in the journalistic community are doing so much to try to raise money for um, families of a lot of reporters and camera people who've died because it doesn't stop at their death. They've got children. Yeah. It's horrifying. There's a second part to this. Is, is in, it's, I think you partly answered this, how challenging it is to navigate supporting some of these journalists depending on what side of a conflict they might end up on. You know, whether it's Ukraine, Russia, or the Middle East, mm. does, that play, does that make it harder to provide support to... To me, it doesn't, because a journalist, our obligation is to the truth. Point final. And I feel that if, if a journalist is, is it in a conflict zone to try to bring that story to the outside world, then we have some solidarity there on, uh, on supporting them. 
Um, from your perspective as an international journalist, if you had to pinpoint one central problem, this is another big one, oh, uh, that is spurring the global slide to authoritarianism and away from democratic processes, what would you identify as the key issue? Well, people feel disenfranchised for sure, as I said, but I'm going to say, based on some analysis I have done on this subject, tragically, it is in this world of conflict I think the last number I saw was 108 million people who are refugees or migrating in this. They, for whatever reason, had to leave their homeland. And that immigration, tragically, is largely behind so much of the, the hate that we see, mm. the, the rise in autocracies, this nationalist thinking. And I always say, you know, if a person... Of course they want to be in their homeland with their language, their granny, their granddad, their, their cousins. If it is so deadly and dangerous, of course they want to go where it's going to be safer for their children. So I, I get so upset when I see what's happening. And, it, and largely I've seen it tied back to global crisis. You see mass influx of refugees from from somewhere, and yeah. it's heartbreaking, really, because it just goes to show you people don't think much further than than you know what's right in front of them. One last question here that I have: um, What do you think about media representation of youth? civic engagement. Do you think that there are perspectives and new ways of reporting on youth activism that could invite them into the political process? There's always new ways. I think one of the exciting things is that we explore new ways. And I think, you know, any news organization actually does try to do that. During every every local, provincial, or federal election campaign, there's always going to be, you know, you might want to call it a gimmick. We're going to drive, I did it myself, drove a bus across Canada, and it was a really cool assignment. But it was a, it was a slightly gimmicky, but what it also did was allow us to go into communities we wouldn't have otherwise seen, hear what they're thinking about. There's lots of ideas to engage people in certainly voting, I think. And the challenge is, is coming up with these ideas and, you know, getting people to show up and participate in it. But yeah, I mean, I would never say there, we're, there aren't always a raft of ideas yet to be discovered that will somehow light a firecracker under somebody who then can tell two friends and so on and so on. Lighting firecrackers. <laughs> yes. I look forward to hearing more from what you're doing. Thank you so much for taking all the questions Thank and you, for being Nala. here tonight. Thank you. So Thank you. It's great to be with you, Nala. That was my conversation with Lisa Laflamme, the former chief anchor and senior editor of CTV National News. It was presented by the Samara Center for Democracy. You can see photos of the event on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. This episode was produced by Chris Wadskow. Special thanks to Sabrina Dellen and the team at the Samara Center for Democracy, to Beth Hanna and Gail Packwood from Ontario Heritage Trust, and the team at the Winter Garden Theatre in Toronto. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Acting senior producer, Lisa Godfrey. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, 
and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.